0: If you have a Bible with you, let's go to Corinthians chapter 1 for me, please. I'm going to be reading from verses 26 to 31. Paul says, consider your calling, brothers, and listen to this to a list of credentials. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Aren't you relieved, church? Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth." But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. And here is one way to apply this to our situation. I believe that we start the journey with a real sense of clarity about our deficit, In our humanity, we are not in a position or have capacity without the work of the Spirit to come into a union, into relationship with God. And God takes us in our lowly state. He welcomes us. He desires us. And he indeed embraces us in all our weakness, in all our frailty, in all our failure. And the starting point for all of us is the recognition that that's how we come. Who needs a Savior if you don't have a sin problem? Who needs God to come and rescue, to heal and restore if you think you've got it all together? And in fact, some of the greatest difficulties for people to embrace the Christian faith is that to stoop low and to recognize need is for some people quite a difficult task. But I was trained to be a good Irish Catholic and grew up with a cycle of self-abuse about how bad I was and how responsible I was for everything that was wrong in my life. And so for me, entering into a contract with Jesus where he got all the rubbish in me and I got all the goodness in him seemed like a fantastic deal. And if you're an Irish traveler like me, you know a good deal when you hear a good deal. But I know for some people, to come to God with a recognition that they are indeed needing a savior actually takes quite a little bit of a journey. And I love what the message Bible has to say about this particular reality. We're going to read it. I'll read it to you. And if you don't mind listening, that would be good. It says this, take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. I don't see many of the brightest and the best amongst you. (laughs) Not many influential, not many from high society families. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose men and women that the culture overlooks and exploits and abuses? Chose these nobodies to expose the hollow pretensions of the somebodies. That's a good sentence, isn't it? Somebody say amen. Come on. That makes it quite clear that none of you can get by with blowing your own horn or trumpet before God. Everything that we have, right thinking and right living, a clean slate and a fresh start comes from God by way of Jesus Christ. That's why we have this saying, if you're going to blow a horn, blow a trumpet for God. Understanding that in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our failure, that God has a passionate desire and an incredible delight to embrace us and to start relationship with us is fundamental to the ongoing journey of walking with Jesus Christ because we are living in a society where it's driven by success. And sometimes in the Christian walk, it's difficult to measure what success looks like. You know, there are people I know who haven't got pulpits, they don't stand on platforms, nobody's reading their books, but actually behind closed doors, they are indeed investing incredibly in the lives of other people. There are people I know who stand on platforms and have written books and say all manner of things publicly, and behind closed doors, they're no longer investing in the lives and the needs of other people. It's very difficult in the kingdom of God to truly assess who is successful or not, and I anticipate when I get to heaven, there might be some surprises. We might find that we're standing next to somebody who we thought perhaps was a nobody and God had handpicked them from the foundations of the earth and made them a somebody in a secret place that changed all manner of things in a public setting. So how do we measure our successes? Well, I think the first thing we need to recognize is that we start this journey from a place of really needing God to help us to discover the truth of who he is and the truth of who we are in relationship to him. And we start this adventure from a place of brokenness. We start it from a posture of need. And that's countercultural in a world where everybody's pretending that they're living on mountaintops. You know, I, when I first came along to the, Christi- to the church, I found it quite bizarre that everybody was an overcomer. I mean, they couldn't overcome the fact that somebody had sat in their regular seat, but they were all overcomers. They couldn't overcome the fact that perhaps somebody was talking to them who didn't have all the trappings of external spirituality, but they were definitely overcomers. And if you asked anybody, how were you doing? Oh, I'm in blessing, brother. I'm in blessing, brother. And when you'd heard them talk to each other in the toilets, you realized that that blessing was hollow, if not faint, and indeed maybe a desire or a posture of heart of wanting God to bless them, but actually they weren't really living in blessing as they protested that they were. So it's not just the world that applauds success. In fact, the church tends to be highly attracted to people who look successful. When I first became a Christian, I had hair down to here, a 24-inch waist, and spray-on leather clothes. Please don't go there, ladies. I know, I don't want to lead you into temptation. But, you know, I, I had been a singer. I've been a professional singer. I I, I kind of came off the Wogan show when I was in church on the Sunday. And And, you know, people wanted to hang around with me because I'd been on television. I mean, the fact that I was... A broken individual, and really had just started the adventure of discovering god didn 't seem to matter. The fact that I could sing or that we could act or we could do things. I ended up getting invited to be involved in all kinds of things, and my character had not played catch up with the opportunities that were opening up before me so it 's not just the world that celebrates so called successes; sometimes the church is guilty of that hollow thing that we all do in society where we look at someone else's life and think that because they have done this or achieved this, that they must be this. The Bible tells us that God does not look on the outward appearance of a person, but God looks upon their heart. The biggest issue to people when I came to the church was that I had long hair. I could have kept them up for a couple of hours to tell them there were a few more issues that were far more important than that. But the reality is, my hair was a stumbling block. I remember one deacon came up to me and he said, Do you know, young man, that long hair is an abomination in the sight of God? And you know, the truth was, I didn't. So I said, No, I didn't. I said, But I think you're probably more offended than he is because you're bald. So whether you're in the church or you're outside the church, sometimes we're all in awe of those who are talented, gifted, good-looking, fabulous, and glorious. And when we come back to the reality, there's not very many of them, really, that when we look a little closer have the attributes that we really admire, which is character, holiness, purity, and affection and devotion and delight in God. And it's so easy for us to get caught up in the whirlwind of those kind of pretenses, whether they're spiritual ones or they're natural ones, we have to be on our guard that we're not drawn towards them and by default begin to not celebrate who we have been given to be in Christ Jesus Christ. But you know, it's official and I say it again, God loves a failure. And the reason I think he loves failures is this, He did not want the beauty of his nature and the glory of his kingdom solely to be represented by the great, the good, and the clever. He did not want the who's who of humanity to portray his own magnificent God and his spectrum of of desire and passion to reveal himself is found in all kinds of people from all kinds of walks of life. Some are high flyers and some haven't even got out of bed. God loves people indiscriminately, and it's a glorious thought to think that I don't have to be anything or pretend to be anything, or even to have achieved much in that sense for God's affections to be offered to me. Aren't you delighted about that? The second thing I want to say to you about failure is this, that God does not need to be seen in all the right places. You know, when I first became a Christian I used to get invited to people's homes Now that I've got old and stuffy and irrelevant I don't get invited to people's homes so much I am looking at you for an invitation I just want you to know that That was a plea from the heart Okay, okay. but people thought I was interesting And they'd invite me to their house And sometimes, you know, I would invite them into my world And of course they couldn't come Because my world was filthy, dirty and rotten And their world was perfect and holy But you know It appeared to me that there was this problem in the thinking of the church, that there were places that were holy, and there were people that were holy, and actually, I had to make my mind up all the time to be with the people that were holy. Now, I am the kind of person that asks awkward questions, and when you ask awkward questions, you realize that the people who pretend they're holy are not that holy at all, okay? And the people who don't believe they're holy might have quite an element of holiness where God is doing something quite significant in their lives, It's important to us that we are not caught up in the paraphernalia of popularity or indeed secular spiritual divide. Because actually Jesus hung out with people that many people criticized him for. He didn't seem to have any great need to be seen in all the right places. Now I don't know if you're like me, but I've given up on that a long time ago. I believe that God has given me this wonderful invitation to meet with people wherever they're at. And whether they are gifted or not gifted or talented or not talented, I find humanity exceptionally fascinating. And I go looking for the goodness of God in just about every face I actually come across. It would seem to me that failures are interesting in another dynamic for God in this, that he chose people who had not just a moment of failure, but actually a track record. He picked people who had historical difficulties with failure. And uh, they were so repetitive that actually it took many, many years for some of that to become normalized. I mean, they were so dysfunctional in so many ways that actually walking with Jesus and the healing of their heart and the restoring of their soul and the love that was displayed to them took a long time for some people for it to begin to materialize in the way that they ordered their world and lived their lives. And I believe that God is patient and kind and long-suffering and desires the fellowship and the journey with us as we begin to be released from some of the complex issues of our souls and brought into this wonderful place of being at peace with God and ourselves. He's not in a hurry to do that. And in fact, he's meticulous about the detail in which he works in our lives. So I'm one of these people (laughs) that is referred to at the beginning of this passage. I'm one of these that should not consider myself to be noble or high or fancy or whatever words you want to put in there. I'm just a very ordinary person who has had an extraordinary adventure with a gloriously extraordinary God, and I choose to stay ordinary And I choose to stay ordinary because I have a tendency, don't tell anyone, I'm sure nobody's listening in on this, but actually sometimes I can be guilty of believing my own press. You know, sometimes people come and say, that was a great word you had for me, thank you very much. And you know, you pretend that you you do that thing Christians do. It wasn't me, it was God. A number of years ago, I was ministering in a church and I said to the worship leader, she was very, very good. I said, You know, that worship was absolutely brilliant. She said, It wasn't me, it was God. I said, It wasn't that good. (laughs) Take a good look, friends, at who you were when you got called into this life. There's not many of you that were bright, not the best, not the most influential, not many from high society. Isn't it obvious that God deliberately chose you? Isn't it phenomenal that he handpicked you? From all the peoples on this earth, he chose you out of your context, out of your circumstance, out of your brokenness, and he invited you into fellowship, the sweet fellowship of relationship with God where everything begins to change and God begins to transform our lives from the inside out. You see, there are only two types of people in this room tonight. Those who are in denial, where are you? Sorry, you're in denial. You're not going to admit that. And those who are in recovery, where are you? Only two categories of people, people who are honest about who they are and people who are pretending that there's something they're not. I choose to be a man that consistently operates out of a heart attitude of recovery. So why does God love us in the midst of all of this failure? What is it about that dynamic that draws his attention and captivates his heart. And I believe there are two things that come from this scripture that maybe will be helpful to us to understand his motivations and indeed his desires regarding our broken lives. The first one is this. It comes out of verse 29. Look at verse 29 for me. It says, God operates with us in our failure so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. In other words, God is really kind enough to us to remind us that we are in need of him. It's God's purpose and the way he loves us to draw us to a place of dependency and to move us out of an operative of self-reliance. You know, there's a big difference, church, between insecurity and dependency, Insecurity is not good for anyone in this room. To have an insecurity about who you are and uh, how God is going to use you will cripple you. It will... It will destroy some of the great things that God's placed inside of you. And if you stay there too long, you'll actually start to become conditioned by that insecurity. But, you know, I decided to trade that up a number of years ago. I'm actually quite an introvert. I know it's hard to believe. I was a quiet boy. I used to sit for hours, you know, craning in and just thinking and watching the world around me. I was an observer. I never, ever dreamt I'd stand on a platform like this, let alone anyone would turn up to hear anything I had to say. But the reality was this, that God in his purpose began to do something in my heart and in my life where actually my insecurity started to move towards a different place. It began to move towards a pester of God reliance. I decided to trade my insecurity for God dependency. And you see, I think there's something about that risk that attracts the favor of God. Do you know every time we pray for a sick person, we're operating from that place How many of us know that you can't heal anybody? How many times have you tried to be really clever and lead somebody to salvation and they walked away confused and you walked away disappointed? Sometimes our fancy words and the things that we think are going to impress people are not impressive at all. People are not buying that kind of vocabulary anymore. They're not that interested in our sophistications. They want authentic reality that you know God and when you speak about him, there's a sound that you make. It's a sound that's different than just information. It's a sound that I call revelation. You have discovered something about his nature and his character that has ruined you, ruined you for anything else and you couldn't go back. And when you start to speak out of what you really know about God, people start to listen. Their their, their hearts begin to awaken because it's the revelation that you carry that is the invitation that they have an opportunity to respond to. And sometimes we're trying to do this stuff, and we're trying to connect with people, and we're trying to do the right thing, but we haven't thought through the process a little bit. And I believe that one of the things that I think failure in reminding myself of my need for God has done for me is that I always ask the question with any conversation I'm having, God, what would you like to say to this person? Father, what is it about this person that you want to reveal in this moment in this conversation. I can guarantee you that if you include him in the conversation, he will have much to say about the individual you're trying to reach because his passion and his heart and his desire is to reach them in a far greater level than you or I ever have. So when we have this recognition that we may be insecure, that some of this brokenness, some of this weariness, some of our experiences in life have indeed shaped our internal world, we don't camp at insecurity. That's not the invitation. The invitation is to step away from that and to come into a place of God dependency. And in fact, it's really good for you and it's really good for me. It's good for your soul and it's good for my soul to constantly be living in a place where I have to be dependent on God. It's called faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. So, when I'm praying for somebody, I often pray for people and I don't feel anything at all. I'm not necessarily, you know, getting a rhema word from heaven, but I know that the Bible says that if we lay hands on the sick, he will heal them. Okay, so I'm, I'm a little bit bold. Some people say it's audacious. I think sometimes God doesn't mind little audacity when it comes to that kind of demonstration of his kingdom. I never take God for granted in it. I I know that the option is always his to do what he wants to do. But I have given him my yes before I am indeed in the conversation. So if I see somebody who's sick, I generally always pray for them. Not because I feel holy or because I know that there's a moment in that where I move from self-reliance. And I'm stepping towards God-dependence. And when I step towards God dependence, he comes because my faith moves his heart and indeed often moves his hand and he begins to move in other people's lives. We have to be the kind of people that are not frightened to step away from insecurity into God-dependence. It's vital for the church in this hour that we don't just have a gospel of words, that we have a gospel of power and demonstration of the reality of God. Paul said, I do not come to you with persuasive words or arguments, but the power and the demonstration of the gospel. Well, how are we going to move in the things that God has invited us to if our self-reliance or our... Our insecurity is robbing us of the destiny that God has indeed invited us to. So I believe that this reminder to us of not boasting in ourselves is really good for us because I can't do very much, but with Christ I can do all things. The second thing that I think happens whenever we start to think through the invitations around failure is this, that we actually get to boast in Jesus Christ. You see, I often say to people when they're a little bit hesitant about coming to church, I say, come on to church. They say, oh, the church is full of hypocrites. I say, come anyway. There's room for one more. There's room for one more. Come anyway. It'll be fine. You'll fit in. Nobody will notice. (laughs) I'm being a bit naughty. Forgive me tonight. It is never good for us to think that we are the people that can change the world. Some of us can't even change our own mind. (laughs) And if you're married, you certainly can't change the mind of the person you're married to. Goodness knows you've tried. But it is really good for us to boast in the Lord. It's really good for the human soul to boast in the goodness of God. To open our mouths and declare what God has done for us. To remind ourselves and anyone who has an ear to hear that what's happened in our lives is purely an act of grace and mercy, kindness and benevolence of the goodness of God. It's vital that we do that. And it's really good for our souls. And in fact, one thing I would suggest to us is tell your story more. Now the Bible tells us in Revelation that they overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony... And can I just highlight a couple of problems that I have? Sometimes we think our testimony is actually our history. It's something that happened 400 years ago to you. Now that's great, but what's your current testimony? What is God doing for you today? What are you discovering about him right now? What is he inviting you to as far as revelation is concerned? What... Fruit of the Spirit, is He developing in you? It's great that something happened to you 400 years ago, but He gives daily bread today. God wants to bless you today. He wants to show up in your life today. He wants to remind you of His faithfulness right now, right here, right here. God wants to reveal to you that He's at work. He never sleeps, no slumbers. He's at work night and day in your life. It's great you have a history But it's even better that you have a testimony, that you are discovering something about him that's rocking your world on the inside, that's expanding your reality of your relationship with God. I love it when he challenges me, and he often does it in this manner. He'll allow me to be offended by something, to reveal something in my heart that he wants to relieve me from. Now, for years, I used to get bogged down in the offence. I could spend weeks being offended. I'm an expert offended person. You know, I'm Irish. We take a grudge to the the finest tenth degree. And we've been at war with England for thousands of years. That's how good we are (laughs) in Ireland at holding a grudge. But the invitation was never to be offended. The invitation by God was to be relieved of parts of my nature and character that have been formed by the broken experiences of life. He desires to reveal himself on a daily basis to me. Give us today our daily bread. We thank you, Father, for everything you did 40 years ago. But we want to see you today. We want to know you today. We want to experience you today, God. We want to have something fresh from heaven. When you do revelation from your word, Father God, a, a plan of action that you're working through with us, God, it's great that all that happened 20 years ago, but what about today? What about here? What about now? So I believe part of the reason that Paul has penned these words is to invite the wonderful people in Corinthians to move beyond those places of thinking of themselves more highly than they ought to and actually arriving back at the place of the induction they had into relationship with God that somehow in all our pretenses to try and be, we might be missing the very thing we're called to be. Just ordinary people in an extraordinary relationship with a God who does exceptional things. So I want to give you four things that I think are important to think about in the midst of failure. The first thing comes out of verses 27 and 28. I want to remind you that no matter what's happened around you or even whatever you've done or has been done to you, whatever failure beseeches you, you are consistently and persistently and will always be the chosen ones of God. Verses 27 and 28 say this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. Your chosenness is one of the most important things to be reminded of in the midst of failure. He handpicked you. You know, when I look back at my life, I think God would have made a better choice having my brother. He was clever. He was sharp. He's a multimillionaire. It would have been really good to have a multimillionaire as a pastor, wouldn't it? No? I mean, I'm not telling you. He has a gift of earning money. Here's what my brother used to do. We used to work the Irish clubs and pubs, and he'd come up to my mom. We had a band, a little Irish band, and he'd say to my mom, can I have 50 pence? And my brother recognized a little something about people that are Irish when they gather together. They're like a wee drink. So he'd take his 50 pence and he'd go from man to man around the club. And there were hundreds of them saying, Mister, you haven't got change for 50 pence, have you? Now, when you've had a few glasses of Guinness and you put your hand in your pocket, you're not really thinking too cleverly about what it is that you're handed. He came back many a night when we did the clubs with more money than we got paid to be in the band. I think we counted it together one night. He got nearly 75 pounds. That's not bad for getting change from a bunch of drunk men in an Irish club. The boy was sharp as a tack. Why didn't God choose him? (laughs) From the foundations of the earth, before you were formed in your mother's womb, he chose you. He knew you, he loved you, he delighted in you. And whether you are living on the mountaintop or scampering around in the, in the dust trying to find your way out of a situation of failure, you are still the chosen ones. You are the chosen people of God. I had a thought a, a few years ago that... Um, I've tried to kind of meditate on a little bit. I'm still working on it. I don't get to choose what happens to me in my life. Many times life happens, doesn't it? I'm not a fatalist, I think I have some choices in it, but you know, there are certain things that just smack you in the face. That's just how it works, and you spend weeks, months, years maybe at times trying to work out how to navigate your your life again. So I don't always get to choose the life that I want, but I get to, to live like I'm chosen. And see, if I start to think about that, I realize that I need to adopt a posture every day, not of um, self-reliance, but actually this wonderful reality that God has picked me. Now, you may not invite me to dinner, <laughs> But God would. Because He's chosen me. He loves me. He likes me. He enjoys my company. He thinks I'm funny. Don't push it, Sam said, don't push it. It was going well up until that moment. (laughs) Pause for a moment. And remind yourself that this whole thing that you have with God isn't because you initiated it. While you were still yet far away and a sinner, Christ Jesus died for you. You had his eye and you have now experienced his affection. He wants you. He wants you. He chose you. So in the midst of failure, that's probably the last thing I think about. (laughs) It's probably not the first thing that comes to my mind. And it's reassuring to me that when he chose me, he knew we would be here. (laughs) So it's not like he's chosen me and he was ignorant (laughs) to the way that things would happen in my life or the decisions I would make. He chose me with foreknowledge. He chose me with an understanding of the end before the beginning. He chose me with all of the pieces And he still chose me and he still wants me and he still delights in me and he still rejoices over me with singing. And when the enemy wants me to lie in the dust, he lifts me up out of the mire and the clay and he sets my feet upon a rock and he reminds me that I am (laughs) in the affection of the perfect one who has nothing but a heart's desire to pour his love out in my life. Failure is not the last word on my life. God's word is the last word on my life. I am chosen even if I'm fractured and frail. I am chosen. I have been chosen from the peoples of the earth, from the foundations. And what can Satan say to that? You see, if I think I chose him, then there'll be the odd day where I think I might choose differently. Because I'm often double-minded. I know none of you struggle with that, but nudge your friend, I'm sure they do. But God has set his heart and set his heart like a flint towards you. And it will never alter, change or shift. You can be surer than you are sure of anything else in your life that you are the beloved of God, that you are the chosen one in whom he delights. And your failure was factored into the process. He foreknew all of the things that would happen and he still chose you. You see, when I struggle with sin, and I know none of you think pastors do, but they do. When I struggle with, you know, fear sometimes, and that's become something in more recent years for me, I used to be fearless and now I think when you get old you get a little bit more aware of people. Maybe you get to the threshold where you don't care what people think, but I'm kinda not there just yet. <laughs> but it's coming, it's coming. It's come. but it's important to know that no matter what season of my life I currently am going through when Jesus invited me into relationship with him when I was 24 years of age he knew everything about me everything there were things he knew about me I hadn't yet discovered there were things I'm still discovering that he never told me at the beginning can anybody identify with that? I mean, I didn't realize how bad a sinner I was until a few years into this. I thought I was doing okay at the beginning, you know. But actually, the longer you walk with him, you you realize a little bit more your frailty. You, You become a little bit more aware of your dependency on him. And he knew all of that. He knew the major difficult problems that I would face and my inept ability to choose the right thing at times. He knew how I'd blame half the world for my problems and never look inward. And all those years ago, in somebody's front room, when I got on my face and invited Jesus into my life, he knew exactly what he was taking on. Every good, every bad, and every ugly aspect of my human experience. And he chose me. And he chose me with knowledge. He didn't choose me with ignorance. He chose me with knowledge. Come on, somebody say hello. Amen. Somebody say hallelujah. The second thing that I remind myself of whenever I'm in the midst of some kind of failure comes out of verse 26. God not only chose and loved me, but actually he called me. And you know, the calling here is not to a job or a function in some way. It's a calling to be the kind of person that lives in pursuit of God, a kind of invitation to a relationship with God that actually affects every facet of my life, whether I'm working in carpentry or I'm working in medicine, whatever it is I'm doing, I'm not just called as a practitioner in those areas. I'm called as a son and I'm called as a co-heir with Christ Jesus and I'm called as a facilitator to the kingdom of God in every environment that I'm in. And you know, there are times when I think I have disqualified myself from that and yet mercy seems to outrun me his kindness seems to invade those moments, and before I know where I am, I'm standing again in a place of believing that God can do all kinds of things through my life. If you've been chosen, then you've been called, and you've been called to know Him. Isn't that the best adventure? Isn't it the most glorious thing to know Him? And I feel for me that he keeps on unveiling some parts of his nature. I thought I knew God when I I was a Christian. I was an avid reader of the Bible. Still am just so insatiably thirsty to have an understanding of God's nature. And you know, you think you've got it down. You think you know how it works. And then he lifts something off your eyes and you see something about his nature. You see something about his character and you go, oh, I never knew that about you, Jesus. I never knew that you could do that. I never knew that you loved like that. I never knew that you cared like that. Our calling while we're here on this earth is to know him. But it's also to make him known. You see, I am absolutely convinced I cannot give away what I haven't got. And so the key to that is to get as much as I can. To absorb as much knowledge. To come to a deeper place. The deep thing in me crying out for the deep thing in God. And the deep thing in God becoming available to the deep place in me changing and transforming and being renewed and being restored and coming into deeper places of love and affection. Do you know one of my goals in life is to end up by the end of it all loving him nearly as much as he loves me. And you know I don't think that's wishful thinking because we're invited to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our mind and all of our strength and I know somebody really good at helping me do that. His name is the Holy Spirit he really helps me to love God in a way that is honoring to God and releasing to me and overwhelming at, at many, many points in my life. He is your greatest cheerleader and he's far more confident in the God in you than you are because he knows him better. So knowing him is our calling and making him known. It's, it's been the passion of my life to offer people what God has offered me. And you know, I find myself repeatedly in similar scenarios where broken people with difficult sexual dysfunctions and difficult problems in their lives, abuses and other things, it seems like all along, somehow, through it all, in it all, in spite of it all, God had a plan. And out of the healing of my own heart and the revelation of the goodness of God and the The real wonderful thought that when you forgive somebody, you're not letting somebody off the hook, you're letting you off somebody else's hook. Those little things that meant huge significance and powerful release to me have become now available to other people. But it was the internal landscape of coming to know him that gave me the capacity To become someone that God might use to make him known. So you are chosen. And in the midst of your failure, you better remind yourself of that because the enemy will put doubt in your heart. But you are also called. You have been called by God. Look at verse 30. This is the third thing I remind myself of whenever I find myself in the midst of failure. That God so loved me God chose me, God called me, but he also put me in Christ. Verse 30 says this, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus. The literal words there are from him or of him you are in Christ Jesus. The idea is simply that we are united to Christ, and the reason we are is because God did it. I didn't do it, God did it. He chose us, He called us, and in His calling He united us. To Christ. We have been grafted into the life of Jesus, grafted into the holiness of Jesus, grafted into the fullness of Jesus. You are hidden in Christ Jesus. I remember chatting with a young man, he came to my office a number of years ago and he said, You know, and I'm sure Pastor R.T. You've heard this and others, you know, I feel God has left me. So I asked him about his salvation. I asked him how he experienced God, what happened, and he, he was clearly impacted by the power of God for salvation, clearly impacted. In fact, as he was remembering the stories, he was crying. And it was just absolutely wonderful to hear how God had changed his life. And so then I asked him this question. I said, if God could do that for you, then what makes you think that he's now left you? Well, I don't feel his presence. I feel I haven't heard his voice for a long, long time. And so I paused and I thought, I just said this to him and forgive me, it probably wasn't appropriate. I said, you're simply not that important that God should leave you. And he looked at me like you're looking at me with bewilderment. I said, do you know that he would have to undo everything that Jesus Christ has accomplished for you personally to now leave you. And as lovely as you are, undoing the work of salvation is not on God's economy and certainly isn't on his agenda. He did promise you, however, and you need to trust this, no matter what you feel, that he will never leave you and he will never forsake you. And maybe there are some adjustments to you becoming more sensitive to his presence and his voice and his word, but actually God has not abandoned you I believe you truly were saved. You just have got to a place where your soul has become dull to the sound of his voice and indeed the power of his word. And so you need refreshing, you need renewing, you might even need reviving, but actually he hasn't gone anyway. He put us in Christ Jesus. Can he therefore take us out of Christ Jesus? I don't think so. The fourth thing I remind myself of whenever I'm in the midst of failure is this. is that God loved us, he chose us, he called us, he placed us in Christ, and then he made Christ our wisdom. Verse 30 says this, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. You see, the wisdom that operates in my life may look like foolishness to some people, who live outside of the parameters of relationship with God. But actually, I believe that Christ has afforded me a wisdom and a clarity about my life and the purpose of my life in a way that actually exposes the foolishness of other people who live outside of relationship with God. There is a wisdom, and it's simple. It's simply this, that I am his and he is mine. That the whole of my life, belongs to him. I don't want to give him partial parts of me. I want to give him all of me because he gave me all of him. He did not withhold a good thing from me in my life. The best of all is the treasure of Jesus Christ, who came to this world to demonstrate the love God has for humanity, died a cruel, horrible death on a cross But through the power of the Holy Spirit was raised from the dead on the third day. Ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. And listen church, the story isn't even over yet. It hasn't all fully been completed. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. And in the midst of a hopeless world, that sounds like a foolish thing to have hope in. But actually it's more concrete, more certain, more reliable than any of the culture shifts that we're seeing happen in society. From everlasting to everlasting is the truth of who God is and all that he's established on your behalf. And I love this phrase. I love this phrase out of the scriptures that somehow through it all, in it all, and almost in spite of it all, one day I will meet him and such will be the working of God in our lives that we will be like him. So failure can be fabulous. If we start to think a little bit differently in times of adversity, when we remind ourselves and indeed the powers of darkness sometimes need reminding that we are chosen of God and He knew and foreknew all of our frailty and our weakness but He said yes to our invitation to come and live in our lives. Not only are we chosen, we're called And we're called and equipped by the Spirit to know him. And the Spirit loves to help you know the Father. He loves to help you know the the Son. In fact, his greatest passion is to keep you connected. And that's why I believe for all of us, it's important that the Holy Spirit is in some kind of activity at the end of a meeting. He is a consistent reality in the way I live my life. And I want you to appreciate that God desires to live with that kind of clarity for you. Consistently aware of his presence and his power and his availability for you to live your life. You're chosen and you're called. And you're hidden in Christ. (sighs) Isn't that just a load off? (laughs) Isn't that a load off? That when the Father looks at you, he sees the Son. And he loves the Son without condition and without reserve. How wonderful to be hidden in the affections of God in that kind of manner. And for you and for me, Christ has become our wisdom. It's a wisdom that's not of this world, for it appears to be foolish to others. But there is a hope that is steadfast and sure. Christ in me, the hope of glory. The the hope of the fullness of God's story invading every part of humanity. And so failure can be absolutely fabulous whenever you adopt a posture of concrete certainty in the reality of who you are in Christ and who Christ is for you.